Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Step into the This is Macabre Grimoire with Airy Show, Travis Nye, and Robert Maley. Welcome to Macabre Grimoire, Chapter 5. Uh, topic today is D.B. Cooper. I'm your host, Ari Show, here with uh, Rob Mailing and Travis Nye. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. All right. So, this is uh, basically a guy that uh, did a heist, <laughs> of, like, thousands of feet above the ground. Ten, around 10,000 feet Around 10,000 feet in an airplane. In the seventies, he he. Let, let's for framing. He is history's America's at least only successful uh, sky pirate and the only skyjacker in the history of the United States to get away with it. So does he hold like a Guinness World Record for the tallest robbery? Tallest? <laughs> I'm not sure. Probably I think he should be recorded for that. He should. He should be. But yeah, but then you're gonna want other people to, that are gonna try and. You don't want to create a world record for that because then other people well, are going to want to outdo that. Funny, funny you should mention that because uh, I thought that this was totally like a a thing that had never happened and never happened again. But there's more to the story than that. Ooh. Let me dig into it a little bit for you. This remains one of the greatest mysteries in the United States. It's a startling crime that captured the American Im- imagination and inspired songs, movies, TV shows, and books. In 1971, on the eve of Thanksgiving, a man who called himself Dan Cooper, you see, the D.B. Cooper thing was actually a typo in a newspaper. Oh. He never called himself D.B. Cooper. He was Dan Cooper. Interesting. And uh, the other papers saw it, so then they called him D.B. Cooper, and the name sounds cooler. It does. And that's that's all it is. <laughs> and so it became popularly known as D.B. Cooper, and so that's what stuck. But there, but he never actually called himself that. He called himself Dan Cooper. So this whole time when he's being questioned, like, did you, did DB Cooper take the money? Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, he didn't. Yeah. Dan. Dan That's Cooper how he gets did. past the yeah. past the uh, lie detector. That's what I say when when bill collectors want to collect and they they misspell my name as Aaron Show. It's like that's not me. Yep. <laughs> Wrong number. Who dis? That's not my kid. No. <laughs> Oh, so on the eve of Thanksgiving, he called himself Dan Cooper and he paid $20 cash for, well, those were the days, Mm -hmm. for a ticket on the 245 flight from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Tacoma, flight 305. At this time, flight 305 was one of the shortest domestic air routes in the United States. In good weather conditions, it could be pleaded in less than 30 minutes. Uh... Witnesses, including the flight attendant who dealt directly with him, described him as a quiet man. Uh, He ordered a bourbon and soda while waiting for takeoff. Those were the days, Mm because he wasn't even in first class, and they Mm -hmm. gave him a bourbon and soda. Damn. In in midair, just after 3 p.m., from his seat, which was 18C, he handed the flight attendant a note saying that he had a bomb in his briefcase, and he showed her a glimpse of the wires and red sticks inside of a, a briefcase he had. He was dressed as just like a regular uh, businessman on a business trip, loafers, suit, oh, nice. uh, glass, and then he had uh, glasses with him. Uh, she wrote down his demands 
for four parachutes and two hundred thousand uh, dollars. Interestingly, and this will come up later, he failed to specify what denomination of ransom money he wanted, hmm. which is not only rare but. Some people think that makes him like a total rank amateur that he didn't do that because for all he knows, they could send it in ones and technically they complied. True. And in fact, what they will do is they will send it in 20s. Oh. And that will be kind of, that's another theory that's like, did that throw off maybe his calculations for this because it's so much heavier than what he was imagining he was going to be jumping with. Oh. So uh, keep keep that. that uh, I'll keep that in mind. Stick a pin in that. Yeah, yeah. A quiet... Okay, yeah. He ordered a bourbon and soda for takeoff. Uh, 18C... Ah. In Seattle, the passengers were exchanged for money and parachutes. Then the flight resumed with with just the flight crew and uh, Mr. Cooper. And the crew, they uh, started a route to Mexico City, which is where he requested to fly. But he ordered that the plane fly no higher than 10,000 feet, which is much lower than the typical operating... Uh, area for this airplane. Uh, he also demanded that they fly with their flaps deployed and their landing gear out, which is very strange. But what it does is that it slows the airplane way down from yep. what it normally cruises at. It lowered its speed to 200 miles per hour, which is not at all typical. It's a it's a decent, it's a little fast, but it's a decent jumping speed, but mm-hmm. not a cruising speed for an airliner. Uh, and uh, let's see. Uh, one note I added here is that a typical skydiver jumps from around 13,000 feet. So he's just a little so, bit below. So he's just a l- little bit below what what a mo- modern, typical skydiver would, gotcha. would go with. But that's interesting, though, that he basically changed the flight's path to, to go down to Mexico City. How pissed would you be, though, if you're on that flight and, like, you're just going to go 20 minutes, a 30-minute flight up to, what, Seattle? Well... And this goes with his reputation as a gentleman thief. Other than the flight crew, yeah, uh, he let everyone go at the at the airport where they gave him the money and the the parachutes. And that's part of the reason. Back, you got to remember, this is pre nine eleven. There's true, no, true. there's like practically no airport security whatsoever. And we'll get on that in a moment. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, you know, people on the flight said that he was super polite and friendly, and the stewardesses even kind of like liked him a little bit and stuff. And, uh, yeah, but he, so he never threatened anyone. He's just like, I have a bomb, just as a matter of fact thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so all the, all the hostages and most of the flight attendants, so it was basically like the one or two flight attendants that he'd been dealing directly with. Mm -hmm. And actually the one he spent the most time with, the one that he showed the bomb, she was released when when they landed at that airport. So it was just like, I think pilot, co-pilot and engineer, and then, like, one or two stewardesses were all that was on the plane with him. Oh, I guess I thought he was on the plane with the passengers going. Like nope. they t- oh, he, he let had, all the passengers. He, had the, he let all the passengers go. Oh, and then they resumed. Then they retook and off. Because that was part of his demands was four parachutes, $200,000, yep. and uh, they refueled. Oh, okay. And I just traded the passengers. Uh, the sorry, I, I got off on a tangent there, but the reason I, I started that tangent was to explain that back then, we typically with air jackers like this, they were usually like political people or people who were desperate, stuff like that. Yeah. And if you just followed their directions, they never really like killed anybody. It was a much different time, oh, very yeah. boring. Right. The whole idea of killing civilians in like a terrorist act or something like that was not 
a common thing. Right. Even with even when someone in the Middle East hijacked an airplane during this era, they didn't kill anybody. It was just like, I'm going to hold this airplane and inconvenience these people until you give me my shit. Right. Um, so there was no, you know, nobody was really that scared about it. And, you know, other than obviously the people who are still on the plane with him who were worried about the fact that he does ha appear to have a bomb. So let's see. So they're, you know, cruising at about 10,000 feet. Two, this is something I didn't know. Two U.S. Air Force jet fighters traveled with the plane, but they had trouble operating at the low speed and altitude. See, I, what I didn't know was about that there were two fighters mm, that were, like, yeah. basically trailing them. But they couldn't trail because it was so slow and so low that basically they, eventually they were just circling above it and doing, like, wide circles around the area where the plane was because they couldn't slow down enough to actually, like, watch what happened. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, uh, they informed him that there wasn't enough fuel to make it all the way to Mexico City flying that way, obviously, because that's such a drag with the, air, with the landing gear and stuff. Uh, after they, so, they changed course and they uh, set it to uh, Reno. Uh, Dan Cooper is quoted as saying at one point, it's like, Reno sounds nice, let's go there. Um, after 8 p.m., somewhere between Seattle and Reno, he jumped out of the back of the Boeing 727. The 727 is the is one of the only commercial jetliners that was ever used that has a rear-deployed staircase, which is another thing I never knew about this story. I always pictured him jumping out of, like, an emergency hatch. On yeah, the side of a me plane. too. Me too. But <clears throat> he, he jumped out of the back just like they do, like, a C-130 in the Army. Yeah. Because the, cause this, like, you know, uh, stair lift basically lowers out of the back of it like the Millennium Falcon and <laughs> just jump. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I thought that was crazy. So, like, personally, that makes me think that he knew what aircraft he was dealing with that they had that stairs. Yeah, he must it's not like Because it's not like the era of the internet where he could have Googled that shit. Right. Um, let's see. So, in, yeah, and in 1971, uh, there weren't even any safeguards to keep him from doing that mid-flight. So <laughs> they didn't even know he started doing it until the drag got even worse and all of a sudden the, the depressurizing light came on so uh he jumped out of the plane uh he landed somewhere in a wooded area near a town called ariel washington uh with the with the parachute and ransom and disappeared this triggered one of the largest manhunts in u.s history the washington national guard was deployed along with nearly 100 fbi agents they found nothing that's impressive yeah it's super impressive another thing people point out is like there's freezing water with the Columbia River and a bunch of lakes that were underneath him that he could have landed in. Mm -hmm. Even if he lands like safely in the woods, uh, it's almost it's almost freezing out, and he is in a suit jacket and loafers. That was the mm -hmm. one thing that blew a lot of people's mm -hmm. mind is that he just had like nineteen, you know, sixties loafers right. and yeah. little thin socks and stuff like right. that, and just but he did it anyway. And um, it was. It was nighttime. Yep, and nighttime. And so, even knowing when or where he was jumping had to have been impressive because, like, no GPS or anything like that. And that makes me wonder if he did because, like, he told them to go to Mexico City and then they're like, we can't make Mexico City. So, okay, how about Reno? So, did he know where he was going to land? Did he know what the angle wise difference would right. be from traveling to. Mexico City and or traveling to Reno instead of Mexico City, right? Or do you just figure that's the same general direction he wanted to travel? He, I mean, I'm almost wondering if he 
planned on ju- jumping somewhere in Washington State anyways. That seems to me to be like, he was, well, obviously with the parachutes and stuff, he was, you know, going to jump. Right. Was the plan, and he was probably going to jump early, so I guess it probably wasn't that, that factor that I'm worrying about is probably not that big a factor because it's so early in the flight. Right. Or w- early in a Mexico City flight. And yeah. honestly, if he would have drowned, everything comes up eventually. Like, you would have found a body eventually. The shoe would definitely be floating. And yeah, the, I mean, this, anything oh, we'll, would have turned up. We'll, we'll get into the, the logistics of that, because this case gets weirder on that front. Okay, okay. Um, let's see. So, largest manhunt in U.S. history. So, nothing, absolutely nothing about this case until nine years later, when on February 7th in 1980, a 10-year-old boy who was gathering fire- firewood with his father on the banks of the Columbia River found three bundles of moldy cash with the rubber band still intact. Whoa. The serial note... Now, call back here uh, to when I mentioned that it was the 20s. Yeah. This the, the money was given to him in 20s instead of $100 bills, so it was a big bag, you know, heavy thing. I think they said like 50 pounds or something oh, like Jesus. that. Yeah, like not light at all. Um, the flight attendant that saw him prepping to, they never saw him jump, but that saw him kind of getting ready, thought she f- tied the bag around his waist with a, with a cord or whatever. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, because this is the era where criminals don't know this is a thing that the government could commonly do, they gave him... You know, like, that's why you'll hear, like, unmarked bills or yeah. unsequential bills when yep. in movies when someone goes, I demand this much money in unmarked, unsequential bills. It's because th- this is, like, a new era for this tactic. They sequenced all the numbers, so they're, like, in perfect order. So they know if the serial number on these bills is within this range, it's definitely D.B. Cooper money. Right. So in theory, as soon as he would have ever spent any of that money over the nine years the federal government would have eventually found out about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which, keep in mind, for those nine years, nothing. So, we're back at this riverbank nine years later, and we find these bills with the serial numbers that match those given to D.B. Cooper. But this discovery would only lead to more questions than answers. For example, these bills were found with uh, found 20 miles outside of the widest predicted drop zone the FBI had used. Wow. Uh, it was also the opposite direction from which the wind was blowing the night that D.B. Cooper jumped, which that's something I didn't know and is, like, yeah. weird. Uh, a geologist, geologist at the time was also very perplexed that the bills were discovered above a portion of the river that had been dredged in 1974. This meant that the money had that, that money got there at least three years after the heist, or else it would have been... Pulled up. Pulled up in the dredging. Yeah. So, after years of dead ends, the FBI finally, I, they never got any further on this. They After 45 years, they ended the investigation as of July 2016. Jesus. The FBI has said that it has interviewed hundreds of people, tracked leads across the nation, scoured the aircraft for evidence, and by the fifth anniversary of the hijacking, had investigated 800 suspects. The New York, Time, New York Times reported in 2011 that the FBI FBI case uh, available in an online vault, or yeah, in an online vault, measures 40 feet long, cataloging more than 100,000 suspects. 1,000. What did I say? You said 100,000. Oh, 
Yeah, 1,000 suspects. Sorry. <laughs> a third of the country was D.B. Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, I am Spartac. I'm Spartacus. Yeah. I'm, Spart I'm D.B. Cooper. <laughs> Sorry. I wish. I want yeah. that 200,000. <laughs> Let's see. Some some of these leads were supplied by psychics, and some were, tur were people turning in... Uh, members of their family they were suspicious of, and some were coming from deathbed confessions. Wow. So just kind of a circus, a media circus of things that yeah. people were turning in right. and calling in, which, you know, that makes you wonder how much detail they lost just in the static of the profile of the case. Mm -hmm. So let's see. this, And this is what's promising here, or not promising, because it's kind of a dead end for them, but it's what tells you that someone could survive doing this is that someone shortly after D.B. Cooper did the exact same thing, survived, got away with it, and they only caught up with him because either him or some idiot that knew him bragged about it, and the FBI got word of it. Shit! <laughs> so, uh, let's see. One of the sus And he's one of the suspects they looked at. He was named Richard Floyd McCoy. He carried out a very similar hijacking and escape by parachute less than five months after the Cooper flight. But Mr. Coy, McCoy was ruled out as a suspect because he didn't match the descriptions provided to the flight attendants, which if you look at the like artist composite of D.B. Cooper mm -hmm. and then look at the pictures of this guy, yeah, it's like a totally different oh. guy. Like, much, much broader, flatter face. Mm -hmm. And so the witnesses are like, Oh, hell no, that's not him. He's not even, like, the right height and stuff right, like that. Yeah. Plus, he had a, a kind of a week, but he had an alibi that he mm. gave the FBI. Um, interesting with this one, yeah. So, he was bragging to a friend. And I thought this was funny because my wife Amanda was actually in the room when I was watching a documentary that I used as one of the sources for this. Mm -hmm. And uh, Amanda was sitting there, and she's just like why did he only ask for $200,000? And I was like, well, mm -hmm. you know, it was 71, and so that was a lot more money back then. However, this McCoy guy, he stole like, oh, I didn't list it on here in my notes, damn. But he stole much, half a million, that's right. Oh. He asked for half a million dollars, and the guy he bragged, that's right, That's because that's part of how they caught him. The guy he bragged to in a bar about how he could do that so easy and this D.B. Cooper's nothing and how stupid was he to only ask for $200,000. And so he like did that and then a week later went out and did it. So this guy was like, I was just in a bar with a guy who said, I'm going to do what D.B. Cooper did and I'm going to yeah. ask for half a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, so is D.B. Cooper really that? Yeah, it's like, is he? Come on. So, yeah. So anyway, he gets caught and they literally like in his front porch, like, because he's got, like, a wife and three kids and stuff like that, like, they find a duffel bag with the half a million dollars <laughs> in it. So, oh, wow. nailed. He went And he went to jail for, like, I want to say, like, 15 years or something like that. Anyway, um, so, hijack, a little background on hijackings. And this kind of, I already covered this a little bit and jumped ahead with the talking about how they weren't oh. as violent as they are now. And right. We, you know, back then, it's like you just did what the hijackers asked, and nobody really would get hurt. Right. So it was just kind of like, oh, okay, we're doing this thing now. Hijackings during the Cold War were often desperate attempts to escape the Iron Curtain. But during the 1970s, criminals began using them as leverage in ransom negotiations. The D.B. Cooper case uh, became one of the most famous examples of the era of hijacking. 
By the mid-70s, at least 150 planes had been skyjacked in the U.S. alone. So they were trying to break. They were trying to go for a world record. They're trying to, like, oh, up. Um, what, maybe one up D.B. Cooper, well, maybe to see if they could do it? Or Well, yeah, it's just like they saw that, and then they're like, shit, it's that easy to just, like, take a whole plane and get a bunch of cash? All you gotta do is say, I'm gonna kill these people, and just sit back, drink a bourbon, and get handed a bunch of cash? Fuck yeah, so... Right, let's go! <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, now we're flight. Considering D.B. Cooper's the only person that was never captured kind of tells you that, mm, yeah, not that great a plan. Well, yeah, you got to keep your mouth shut, you have to have a, an airtight plan, and you have to know a lot of things. And they have to just assume your name is something else. Well, and how did they get the $200,000? That, that Did they just get it from the pla- passengers on the plane, or did they get it when they landed? They got it when they landed, along with the parachutes. Okay, okay. I was, those, I w- those were actual demands, so it was like they sent someone, like a member of the flight crew came down, picked up the four parachutes picked up the uh, cash, and then walked it back in while the other passengers were... Were deboarding. It was very orderly and okay. very, like... You know, it's not like nowadays where you'd have a SWAT team just ready to strike right there and mm-hmm. sharpshooters on the roof and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's a different era. Okay, okay. Um, let's see. And then so, a quick question, too. What's the Iron Curtain? You don't know what the Iron Curtain is? That's why I'm asking. Okay. I'm sorry. No, the... Uh, so you're familiar with the Cold War, with the Soviet Union? Fairly familiar. Okay. Okay. Uh, countries that are on the other side that were part of the Warsaw Pact or part of the communist oh, side. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they are considered on the other side of the Iron Curtain. I'm making quote marks with my fingers to say this for <laughs> listeners. Quotes. Yep. I heard uh, that a little bit in the voice. The, so. the, uh, it comes from a quote from Winston Churchill in a speech uh, shortly after the end of World War II right about the time that uh, the Russians started cutting off the East Germans from the West Germans, and they cut off Czechoslovakia and put down rebellions there. And it's really, like, it's probably, like, I think four years after World War II Mm -hmm. when stuff is, like, really getting crappy Mm -hmm. uh, with... The Soviet Union is becoming the so like the Soviet Union we know from classic stereotypical Cold War stuff. Right. And uh, Churchill said that uh, an iron curtain was descending across the face of Europe. Oh. And it iron because of the the divisions of tanks because the the Russians had tanks, man. Right. What's funny is you look at the U.S. arsenal from the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. The Iraqis had a holy crap load of actually pretty good Soviet tanks that they bought, surplus when the Soviet Union fell. Mm-hmm. But the U.S. arsenal was nothing but machines designed to kill those tanks. Oh, Jesus. Because they expected to fight a land war in Europe where it would be, we're going to be overwhelmed by Soviet tanks. tanks. Gotcha. Okay. That's, that's why the a- the Abrams tank that we have isn't really a tank so much as a tank killer. The main okay. cannon on it fires a depleted uranium wedge. Jesus. That's specifically designed to break open the armor of a Soviet tank. Fuck. And, uh, like, our attack helicopters, like the Apache and stuff like that yeah. that were so common then, yeah. designed as, like, tank killers. Wow. So, yeah. Little, Interesting. Little side note. Yeah, yeah, no, there. I needed that. I didn't know that. Okay. Sorry, military history. I can I can go on forever. But uh, anyway, so yeah, that's what the Iron Curtain is. Mm, thank you. So you had people who were like East Germans who were trying to get over to the, the other side and escape to democracy and stuff like that. Gotcha. Uh, and you saw a lot of it with involving Cuba, I want to say, in this era. But I didn't find anything about that in the notes. And I didn't really, mm-hmm. it's not really germane, I guess. Right. Uh, let's see. So 
I thought this was interesting. This came up in a New York Times article. Originally, uh, this was deemed a case of air piracy, which mm -hmm. is a felony that carries a statute of limitations of five years. However, a grand jury indicted him in absentia for violating the Hobbs Act, which is a federal statute aimed at preventing the extortion uh yeah, prevent extortion, and it carries no statute of limitations. So one FBI agent was quoted in the documentary as saying, in theory, if Cooper were to walk out of the woods today, he would theoretically be charged with a crime. Oh, shit. So, yeah, it's still, it's still you know, it's a cold case, but it's still an active case. Yeah. Um, so, so here's a little perspective on how it... Oh, go ahead. No, no. So basically, if he showed up at any point in time now, they'd be like... Your ass is going yeah. to jail. It, for anyone who was sitting there wondering, what's the statute of limitations on this? There are no f none for the Hobbs Act. So, gotcha. so he'd be he'd be screwed if they ever found him, even in a retirement home. So, the high. F uh, how did this affect American culture? The high flying exploit of the man known as DB Cooper infused American popular culture at the time. Uh, parts of the story were known to be dramatic enough to inspire writers, directors, and musicians. But the unanswered questions had to be patched up with guesswork. In the 2004 movie, Without a Paddle, and I'd forgotten this until I was doing oh, this research, yeah. uh, was about three friends who headed into the wilderness in search of the lost ransom money of uh, D.B. Cooper and ended up finding his skeleton. Oh. <laughs> in 1981, the movie The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper uh, opened with Treat Williams as in the lead role as a former Green Beret named J.R. Meade. The movie is based on J.R. Reed's 1980 book, Free Fall. Uh, it's a fictional account of D.B. Cooper's life. And uh, other uh, fictional books included D.B. by Ellen Reed, in which Cooper was a Vietnam veteran named Phil Finch, and James Kane's Rainbow's End in the 1970s, which had similarities. Uh, artists from Todd Snyder to Chuck Berry have all written songs about D.B. Cooper. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I thought this was interesting because I read, this is from the New York Times report about it, but uh, this is also in the National Geographic documentary that's linked in our show notes. Uh, the Ariel General Store and Tavern, because it's a small, it's like a Wessington-sized town of like 200 people. Mm -hmm. uh, they they are basically a, a shrine to and like a museum of D.B. Cooper memorabilia oh, wow. from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little tiny drinking drinking town. And... Uh, you know, it's closest town to where they thought he landed. Mm -hmm. It's kept the story alive. They do an annual guest to get together that's uh, toasts D.B. Cooper as a folk hero. Uh, let's see. And the uh, in the in the video they showed it, and it's just like it's a bunch of drunk, rowdy, you know, redneck. It's yeah, rednecks and stuff, and they're all like D.B. Cooper, and like what's and you can tell it's a lot of older guys who were like alive when it happened that are all hanging oh. out. And, well, they do a look-alike contest, oh. so people dress like D.B. Cooper with a suit from that time and stuff like that, and uh, I, I liked it, uh, uh, to, like, there's one old guy who's just, you know, being a, being an ornery old guy, yeah. just being like, I'm D.B. Cooper, and a lot of them are all like, well, I'm D.B. Cooper, oh. and uh, his his one guy says it, and his, his wife looks over and is like, well, then where the hell's the money? Yeah, right. <laughs> What did you do with the money? That's interesting. I wonder if uh, Agent Dale Cooper is from Twin Peaks isn't also uh, a, a callback to D.B. Cooper. That's really interesting because that'd be something that was in the zeitgeist in mind of the of like someone who would be reading about the FBI yep. and stuff like that. So 
super possible. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. My cat's That's, name, yeah. I, I miss, yeah, I missed that connection, but that could totally be a thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, my I, cat's name is also Cooper. I bet he's D.B. Cooper. It could be. <laughs> I know when we first started talking about doing this topic, uh, the first time I heard about D.B. Cooper was in Prison Break. Ah. So that, that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I've heard about that somewhere, and then I kind of researched it. Yeah. After watching the episodes and stuff. So did you know, going into this, that someone had actually successfully done it? That other, that Roy McCoy or whatever? Yep, yep. I couldn't remember his name or any facts about it at all, because it had been a while. I don't remember what year. Because like, I didn't know out, anyone but... had ever actually, like, pulled that off and just, like, gotten away with it, other than the fact that they were an idiot and bragged about You're right. it. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, because I'd heard, I've heard a few different iterations of the story, so that's why I was kind of confused about... Me too. About the details. Like, I thought um, the plane was flying over, like, the Midwest of the United States. Me too. And I thought at some point in the middle of the flight, basically, that there was a load of cash on the plane, and he got the cash, and then he parachuted out, and, like, that was it. Like, I, yeah, and, and I was he just fuzzy. disappeared. I was super fuzzy on a lot of the details, and especially what really surprised me from this one was the... Um, the rear of the plane yeah. had a staircase that he could literally just walk off of like it, like a professional skydiving yeah. platform. Yeah, because I watched, um, I had heard about D.B. Cooper on an episode of Bizarre States briefly, and then I also um, saw a little bit of it on an episode of Mysteries at the Museum because I had like an artifact from the plane or something sure. that he jumped from. So, but... For me to get the details that messed up, I wonder, like, how close is I actually paying attention to the story in the first place? But I legitimately thought it was, like, a cross-United States flight that he... Had yeah. all this time to... Yeah, they had all this time to, like, basically steal away into, like, the storage the area. Oh, yeah. yeah. I did the same thing, because yeah. no one has ever actually seen him jump. Right. I had this theory that, well, maybe he's, like, a contortionist. And oh. he climbed into a compartment or a part of the plane right. that no one would think to look in yeah. and cram in with the cash. They'd all be scattered all over walking and looking. But uh, the especially in the National Geographic documentary, they really got into, oh, no, there were like 50 agents all over the plane as soon as it landed. Yeah. And they basically took it apart piece by They literally like took the plane apart. Wow. Like in fact, looking for any kind of forensic clue they could find. Do you think, okay, I just had this this interesting thought, that when they landed the plane in Portland, and I don't know if it was Portland or if it was Seattle. Anyways, Uh, it was Lilith, Seattle. Okay, so they they landed... Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Okay, so they landed the plane in, in, in in Seattle, and one of his demands is actually bring me a pilot's uniform. So, follow me on this. So, he basically okay. stuffs his own clothes with the cash, tosses it off the plane to make it look like he sky jumped off the plane. Because I'm pretty sure those fighter jets could have seen something fall off the plane, right. but they can't confirm if he actually fell off the plane. They couldn't. Right, because they couldn't. Yeah, so, when the, so, when the plane has to land, he... Basically says to these flight attendants and the pilots, like, don't you say anything, otherwise I will kill you or whatever. Basically threatens them. So he's able to deboard the plane with the pilots and stuff, and everybody vouches for him, and he gets off scot-free. Because he looks like a pilot. Because mm-hmm. people are 
you know. There was a movie. They don't know. A, a bank robbery like that where they end up dressing up all the hostages as the bank robbers. And yes. And they all walked out together. Uh, yeah, yeah. Inside Man. Uh, yeah, that's a really good I movie. I love that movie. Yeah. So that's because I love I love the fact that they did that to get everyone out except for the main guy whose voice would be recognized. That yeah. he that because I couldn't figure out for the life of me all through the movie why they were basically putting that hole in the wall. Yeah. And this is like they basically like walled him in. Yeah. That was that was a great movie. I yeah. love that. So like that that's my thought on the fact that well he really wasn't around. He, he, you couldn't find him in Washington, but he went back to that area after the heat died down and. Now, got his cash. There's a whole bunch of interesting thoughts yeah. on, the, on the 1980s discovery of the three bundles. Yeah. Uh, so it couldn't have been buried at the time of the crash. Uh, there was a lot of people who speculated that he literally did it as like a fuck you to the cops to or to the FBI investigators mocking them. Yeah. Um, the National Geographic special got into some really interesting forensics that they did specifically for this documentary and the thing is that they come up with a very solid theory on the surface of what happened mm -hmm. except that there's one part of their theory that i think is super harebrained yeah. and totally like derails it so the in the documentary the main thesis of it is that they argue that well it's pretty sure db cooper he landed in the columbia river died and because uh, from hypothermia because of the cold yep and uh you know the money got dislodged at some point and so that the three bundles showed up uh the whole like finding a shoe or finding a body or something like that the big problem is the columbia river right there is really close to where open or it empties into the ocean right and so that could be explained why they didn't find anything but here's the part where their very very exhaustively researched thing falls apart for me mm -hmm. is they're like well this location is still four miles up river from where the, like, where he could have, like, go, where he technically would have gone in the water or whatever is, like, up a direction of, like, the Franklin River. Uh, basically, he would have had to travel upstream four miles for this theory to work. Oh. So... Okay. How how would the, how would the, if he drowned or hypothermia, like they said in their theory... Yeah. How does the money end up upstream four miles? Right. And literally the documentary, all it does is it cuts to the forensic guy being like, well, I imagine that the, uh, it's a shipping, it's a busy shipping area for like cargo, like hauling like coal and grain oh, and stuff like that. Okay. And his theory is that, well, he just got caught in a propeller and got dragged up those four miles or whatever. Yeah. But the probability of that happening and no one noticing and it, only scattering those three bills and not like making a gigantic mess. Yeah. Uh, really throws me and like so that they had this whole the hour long thing that really was like wow they've really convinced me that yeah he must have drowned or died of hypothermia. Yeah. Uh, and that's the logical explanation. That's the only explanation that it can be. And then they're like, well, this is the linchpin of our thing is that somehow he magically had to travel four miles <laughs> yeah. uh, in the wrong direction up the river. Right. And it's like. Oh, um, 
Yeah. I, I, so then they lost me. And then I was yeah. like, okay, so they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Right. Or they're just trying desperately to, like, get to some kind of conclusion for the end of this show or right, something. Right, They needed that. They, yeah. They yeah. Just- so my question is, like, because you said that they basically lumped the serial numbers to the bills together. Which, yes. Even if you go to the bank now, you'll get a stack of new bills. The serials are still in order. Yep. Um, what kind of blows my mind about it is to think about is that I have a hard time believing that even if I had, say, a thousand one dollar bills and the government was tracking those, that any of those would actually make it back to any government source for them to see that, unless the bank... The banks do it. The banks actually record all the serial numbers? They uh, they scan the bills. like okay. when So, but basically, you could go around and you could spend it at, like, Walmart, McDonald's, uh, you know, or a department store, wherever. Yeah. Uh, when those as, make the as soon stops. as they did their ba- like the Brinks truck shows up and it actually goes to, into a bank in like a big bag of money, mm-hmm. yeah. the um, now that bank will not scan it, yeah. but they will send those bills to a Federal Reserve branch, and the Federal Reserve branch will scan them. So it's crazy to think that if I spend money here, that it truly does not stay local. Like oh my no, have you ever? played and maybe this is something for the bonus episode but uh there's this there was this internet thing in the early aughts that i participated in called where's george yeah oh yeah yeah i've I've never successfully done like the very first time i ever got one of those when i was in minnesota i entered it in the computer and then that turned me into a where's george guy and so i tracked a bunch of my money around back then i should see if i can find my login because i'm kind of curious now if anything new has been logged but uh no mine were the the 20 i had was from had like it been in rhode island iowa uh twin cities minnesota and then I don't know that I ever checked it after I spent it, right. so I don't know where it went from there. But it, tra- yeah, it money travels like the patterns are super crazy if you go mm-hmm. to that site. Well, I took uh, the Where's George idea like without ever actually doing it myself. Uh, but I took that concept and utilized it as a business card because I'd write my website on every bill that I got for like a year. Huh? Oh, ah, ah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So you're so you're hoping you're getting local people. Well, I don't know because I travel outside of South oh, Dakota. Oh, okay. Stuff like that, but I was always wondering, like, I wonder if I'll ever see this bill again. That's pretty awesome. The only problem with that is that if you did that enough to enough bills to draw any kind of like government attention, <laughs> that the act is illegal. Yeah, that's true. Well, like yeah. that's why where George where's George eventually got shut down. Mm-hmm. I think the website might still be up, but like they can't sell their stampers that they used to oh, anymore okay. that have an ID number on them and stuff because it's technically defacing U.S. currency. That's mm-hmm. funny. And then I think there's other things about like tracking currency like that is like illegal under like commerce. Something something law or something. Yeah. I I just remember they got into a whole bunch of legal trouble on multiple fronts, and that's why that kind of died out. Well, and they didn't know. They were just trying to find a way that be something curious entertaining. People. Yeah. Oh, yeah, curious people. That's I mean, funny. Uh, I have a friend who uh, got a twenty dollar bill signed by Paul Westerberg, and he held on to that for the longest time, and then he ended up having to spend it. And he was just like, "Oh, well, so even worse than writing my website on a bill, like." I've, like, physically erased, like, symbols on the bill and then ran it to my printer and put my logo on it. 
Jesus, that is soups illegal. Holy crap. Printed on there or like a card or like a hidden message or something and actually I'll print on paper first and tape the bill to line it up right and then run it through my printer again. While we're, because you know, uh, if you scan money and try to do anything with it in Photoshop, like it'll, your Photoshop will lock you out. Oh no, I didn't what? know that. Yeah. That's um, crazy. And if you go to like basically any scanner that gets sold, anything that scans or photocopies in the United States is required by law to basically have these chips in it that check for if you're scanning money. And also if anything, so most of them won't even let you try to print money and stuff like that. It's like really tough to get even close. Oh, it's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, but uh, yeah, but I've I we had a plan where we were going to make these uh, company fun bucks for a company that I worked for. Oh, sure. So we were going to scan the dollar bills, and then we would put the owner's Dale's face oh, uh, nice. in the bills and make a bunch of like funny stuff all over the sides. And it was going to be you know Zorb dollar. Is Dale Zorb is like yeah. Zorb dollars, and yeah. yeah. it's going to be like him like giving a stupid face in the middle of the bill and a bunch of jokes all over yeah, it. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, couldn't do it. You'd, you'd scan it, and even if you'd, like, tried to change the scale or something like that, we were starting to get worried. It's like, is this going to, like, call the police at some point? <laughs> yeah. we keep, if we keep trying. And, if we uh, enter secretly a fax machine. Well, this is not a conspiracy theory. Your printer has a manufacturer signature in the pattern of the dots that's like a fingerprint. Okay. Yeah. And so if you... So, like, for example... If you print a ransom letter or something like that, as soon as the FBI gets it, they'll know the make, model, brand of the printer. And they may even know, like, based off the serial number, where it was uh, Where it sold. originated from. Wow, so I need to go get that letter out of the mail. Well, exactly. Even, <laughs> even, like, typefaces on typewriters back in the day, too, had specific fonts. So they could, t- they could narrow it down to what type mm-hmm. of uh, typewriter was being used. Because in the case with... Uh, um, oh God, the pilot that Charles Lindbergh, when his baby was kidnapped, yep. the type of typewriter that was used was was a was a really odd brand, and so they were able to kind of track down like who like the like who bought the specific typewriter and kind of narrow it down to like who had kidnapped his kid. See, that makes sense because I remember watching a CSI episode where like there was like track like bleed out from the printer on the side of a page that the, whoever criminal they were tracking cut mm. out. And like they're like, oh, here's this is what we need. I'm like, spill tank. What are y'all looking at? Right, but right. Now I understand kind of what. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy yeah. Enough. It's down in the microscopic like the dots. The like, dot matrix. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's crazy how good they are with that. And like, there's a department at the FBI. I've seen this before. That forensically, they just do nothing but collect different kinds of materials and paper, so that like if they have a bomb. They literally, like, and all that's left is this bit of cloth. They literally have a, a library of different cloths. That's crazy. Like, it, no. like every cloth manufactured or sold in the U.S. that they can go through and compare it to. Um, I don't know how, I don't know when they started that. There was a case that I saw where this little girl was kidnapped from a Christmas party at her apartment complex. And they had... They had a suspect that they that they were pretty sure that he took her from the party and then basically, you know, killed her or whatever. Oh. And so the 
to prove it, they had to go through his car and they had to do a fiber analysis on his on everything in his car. Yep. And they found and so they had to figure out the dress that she was wearing and it was like the specific dress from like the JC Penney's catalog with like a I don't know, like Big Bird on it or something. Yep. And um they had to contact the company to get a, this dress so they could compare the chemical um the chemical uh, what am I looking for? Analysis or whatever on the dyes in this dress because it was such a specific color. And um, J.C. Penney's were like, well, we're all sold out of this dress. So they had to like go to like the public. Like if you have this dress, send this to us so they could do that. So I won. And that was back in like, I want to say like the early 90s or late 80s when this kidnapping happened. So I wonder if it's maybe it can't be an exhaustive you know, Yeah, I'm collection. guessing it's not like flawless and everything. Right. But I wonder. But they have like just thousands and thousands. Oh, of, I'm sure. I believe it. Yeah. Because I mean, like, even like paint has a specific, you know, chemical compound profile, not just for like, just you know, red paint, but specifically to like your vehicle, you know, because like only GM uses a certain type of paint, and you know, only like um, I don't know, like Ford uses a certain type of paint. So right. the red, it's the reds aren't the same, even though if they look the same. So. I watch a lot of crime documentaries. <laughs> no, I, I I hear you there. Uh, those are popular podcasts too. Those true crime. They things. are. They absolutely are. You ever uh, listen to a white wine true crime? Mm -mm. That's that's a good one. It's just two ladies who sit there and drink white wine while they watch uh, Case File on A and E. Oh my god! <laughs> and it's and they, and they're both uh, comedians from Los Angeles, oh, and so they just yeah, it's pretty. Good it's then. fun. That's awesome. They did a crossover episode with uh, another comedian I listened to, and that's how I found them. I'm oh, just like, cool. oh, this is good. That's awesome. Um, let's see. So, yeah. So, what what do we think? What's our final verdict here? Because, I honestly, this, uh, you know, like in Chapter 4, when we talked about the Kirkyard, that was something I investigated, and well, my energy was actually, like, down a little bit because I felt like there wasn't as much there as I thought there would be. Right. This is the opposite, where as soon as I got into it, I learned so much more, and I'm like, this is so much more impressive than I thought it was. I was like, oh, yeah, a guy parachuted out of a plane. It's like, there's so much more going on here, and what he if he pulled this off, well, even what he did accomplish is, like, freaking impressive. amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, even the, like, finding the bills, like, I'd heard that, like, you know, probably decades ago and i was like well then that means he died if they found the money there right. and it's like washed up and then you dig into it the like four miles upstream thing and the fact that it's only the three bundles etc etc and it's like huh okay no no idea yeah. and so i could see why like there's fbi agents like old retired ones now who are just like spent their career just like agonizing over like finding db cooper poor guys yeah. I kind of, th I don't know, I kind of think he might have uh, fell in line with the flight crew, and that's, and he got away that way. Yeah, I don't know. I, I would... But that's, that's hard, that would be very hard to do, <laughs> considering they probably know exactly who were the pilots. And the flight crew themselves would be like, uh, you know, this right. is the guy. Because like, uh, uh. <laughs> they... they because the other thing is, as they're getting off, they they might have the other witnesses around and stuff like that, and... Uh, yeah, it just, it'd be really messy for them to do that. Oh, for sure. Kinda like, I liked the climbing into an overhead compartment or some oh, yeah. like, other compartment mm -hmm. on the plane uh, idea that I had until got into the whole... Uh, the research and everything. 
yeah, when I got into the research, it's just like, nah, they, because they thought of that. Because you think about it, we're sitting here, and this is what we could come up with, me researching for an afternoon, and you guys, what you know, what you read and researched. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, TV. Uh, if you think if you think about it, it's like, what are we going to think of that's clever that a freaking FBI agent who spent 30 years agonizing over this question didn't think of and check for, you know? Right. It's like, yeah. shit. Yeah. Well, but there are times, you know, if you're, if you're, when you're so into it, looking at this one specific topic that... Also very true. You don't step back to take a look and, and think of other ideas outside the box. So that's, that's why it's always nice to bring in a fresh mind that has no influence on the case that can kind of come up with their own ideas to, you know hypothesize i'm definitely swayed by prison breaks theory like what, yeah. what is their yeah, theory their okay theory? so prison break have, have you guys watched the show no okay so you guys need to watch it because you will get sucked in like when <laughs> i first heard about it i'm like okay how can they make four seasons about somebody breaking out of a prison that's it okay but, a little backstory the ver- one of the very first things you ever told me when i met you was that I needed to watch Prison Break. <laughs> like, this this show is flat-out phenomenal, okay? Like, it, it's so spot-on on, like, facts and, like, how, like, smart it is, how thought-out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, basically, uh, the guy breaks in, uh, gets himself sent into prison, because yep. knowing the system and everything like that, to help his brother escape. Uh, so, he's covered in tattoos... And it's actually, he, he was an architect, and mm. so these uh, tattoos that just look like a picture and graphics and right. stuff like that to everybody else is actually the prison blueprints and his map and his escape plan. Oh, Jesus. So he takes his plan and map into the prison with him. Um, so he also knows all the people who are in prison, so he has, like, a crime boss who's going to be, like, the guy who secures his plane and all that stuff to escape once they get out of the prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knows D.B. Cooper is in the prison. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, oh. And that's where they're getting their money to fund mm. this whole thing. Um, but basically... So he's a character in the show? Yes. Oh, interesting. Holy shit. Yeah, um, now I want to watch yeah. it. Yeah, like, the cool thing is, though, he's just, like, some old guy who's been in prison forever... Uh, who has this cat, which pets are not allowed, but he's been the cat's been grandfathered into the prison system, I guess. Sure, yeah. Um, and so uh, the main character keeps saying, I know who you are, blah, 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 here's the facts, and then the guy denies it. And then he goes, nope, here's dates, times, this is what happened. And he says, well, you could be right, son, but I was in this place here, blah, blah, blah. I have medical history of me being in a hospital or jail or whatever. And then, like... Later on in the episode, he fires back with proof, and then towards the end of the season, he finds out that he was D.B. Cooper. Oh. So, um, the cool thing to it is that basically, uh, Michael Schofield, the main character, proves the fact that when D.B. Cooper jumped out of the plane, he had a truck waiting for him Mm. to haul the money. Yep. He injured his leg and was driving, hid the money, um... Which then, he, he wanted nothing to do with it knowing, because obviously he knew about the plane, he knew about his flight path, he knew about the speed, all that stuff. So he's also smart enough not to actually spend the money. Right. Um, so he buries the money and says, forget about it. Shortly after, he gets pulled over for drunk driving. Uh and then this is how he ends up in prison because he accidentally kills somebody. Oh, shoot. So now this guy, old guy in prison, has a limp 
and this is how he identifies him as the, he jumped out of the plane and injured his leg. Oh. This is where the limp comes from, all this other stuff. Yeah. And so then in the following season, now they're going after this money because they have to go get it. But found out that the the farm they built it on no longer exists, so now they have to go into like old artifacts in the library of the old map of the town to find out where this farm used to be that he buried the money. So it's like a central thing to this show. Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, damn. Um, and then basically finds that there's a new housing development that was built on top of this and like underneath a concrete basement that they now have to dig through the location. Oh, wow. And then, then these guys that all busted out of prison together are now fighting to make sure that one, they're not all together as convicts to get caught, but two, can trust one another that once they get the money, it will be dispersed even right. fairly. Right. And, and it becomes this whole feud of how they're going to get this money and trying to outsmart one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's pretty. It's an. It's an amazing is it, show. Is, is the season? Is the series done now? Uh, they just did another se- uh, ep- uh, season, like two or three years ago. Okay. And it was just as good as. The so other. how many seasons are there? There's five right now. Okay. There was originally four, mm-hmm. um, and every one of them was just as good as the, the first one. Maybe that'll be next on our two watch list because right now we're watching V. You guys are still watching V? Well, we watched the 1982 uh, miniseries that was on TV. Yep. We watched the 1985 TV series where they actually had like uh, one and a half seasons. And now we are on the 2009 or 2008 yep. series. So we just started. Not that I stalk you, but I do listen to your podcast. Yeah, so no, I, know, I, know. I know you guys have moved into the remake. Yep, yep. So now we're into the remake and, uh, and that's where we're at right now. So we're kind of getting a kick out of watching these old TV shows. Um, just because like, we were on Taxi for a while there. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it, it was actually really, really good, and they tackled some really good topics that were actually kind of interesting, like uh, bisex- like, uh, like gay, uh, homosexuality, um, and um, that's the only one I got right now at the top of my head. That's terrible. But, sure. But-, but, but they did tackle a lot of really interesting topics. and Surprising um, for its time. Yeah, super surprising for its time. Um, and then what, what did, I don't remember what we did after that. I think we just dove into V after, after Taxi. So, yeah. But we'll do that. We'll watch a lot of old, uh, TV series that basically, right now I think our rule is kind of like they have to be done. So we can kind of binge watch it. But we don't really binge it. We just, like, watch two episodes a night. And then we get through it. So. My, uh, I'm on a tangent now. Like, I'm gonna have to go home and watch Prison Break again. Now you're gonna have to watch V. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, my wife Just don't watch did. Heart's Son. Yeah. <laughs> so bad. I, oh no. Oh god. I, I won't say I'm tired, but I forgot you were in the room here, and it was probably like 10 a.m. when I did that rant the first time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my wife actually did like a whole Prison Break birthday for me. Whoa, Aww, that's so cute. We're like. <laughs> Uh, because his code to communicate with people is these origami swans. Yeah. Which just looks like something he does as a hobby while in prison, but right. besides a note and codes and all that other stuff, yeah. sure. like puzzles and riddles. And so my wife started leaving these all over town, which one led to another and another. Oh, another. awesome. Um, so that was that was super cool. Um, and you're just geeking out the whole time. I know, right? Yeah. So I'm like, like, as soon as I open up the first thing, I'm like, oh, I know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> So now you have to throw her a Harry Potter-themed birthday party. Well, that was her return to a party that, or a birthday that I did for her, which we lived in uh, um, Port Washington, Wisconsin. Oh. 
which is right on Lake Michigan, and like they have a uh, Pirate Fest, which is like the largest pirate party in Jesus. I didn't, I didn't even know about that. I think like, I've heard of it. Where like an actual like pirate ship comes into the harbor, whoa, and like people will like repel or swing with ropes like onto like the sidewalks and stuff, and literally take over the town. Like it's all planned out for the whole weekend. Yeah, and like. They will go in and like tear down like all the flags and banners and signs and stuff and put up like black pirate flags. Dang! And then it becomes like everybody's dressed up as pirates downtown and it's really really fun. Uh, also, it's the largest fish fry in the country, um, <laughs> so that's nice. really cool. Um, but for her, basically, she was kind of into pirates and stuff before that anyway because she thought it was just kind of a cool theme. So I basically did the exact same thing, but treasure hunt style. Oh, nice. Uh, where I like tea dyed some paper and then made my like a treasure map. Oh, cool. oh awesome! Like and then we actually had to go down to the beach, which so then she had to dig for her presents. Oh, that's awesome! I don't do any like stuff like that for Dominic. Not many people do. Uh, I, was just, <laughs> I feel like I feel like a douche now because I'm just like when I when I was well like five years ago. That's the kind of stuff I did do. I. Well, a man and I both did like pretty extravagant things. Yeah, but yeah. As we've been getting older, I think this last time I was pretty much like. What can I get you on Amazon? I don't know. Pick something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any, I, anymore, it's just like, I just want a good night's sleep. Just put the kid to bed and let me sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have some friends that what they do when it's their birthday, they will take the kids out of the house so the birthday person gets to stay at the house by themselves and just do whatever the hell they want to do all day. And then they meet up that night for like dinner and then and then whatever but yeah but I'm, Dominic and I are just like that's what that's how we're gonna do it for like Father's Day basically you don't do anything with your dad you just everybody leaves the house and the dad gets all day to himself or Mother's Day too like some, on Father's Day you are not a father yeah you are not a father you get to have whatever, do whatever you want by yourself and just enjoy your day so birthdays too so very good yeah so yeah D.B. Cooper I think the the main bullet point on this is go watch Prison Break. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it does, actually. Uh, well, thank you for listening to everyone. If you like the show, feel free to give us a shout-out on social media. We are on uh, on the Facebook. And uh, also, if you really want to support us, uh, we'd love it if you'd visit our Patreon page, check out our perks and our, our bonus content, like our after episode that we do after each episode where we do a little more casually, like break out what we were talking about and kind of the you know a little more loose on on the discussion uh let's see and yeah so please support us on patreon uh if you can't do that uh we'd ask that you please leave a nice review on itunes soundcloud or wherever you're uh, listening to this show so thank you definitely like our facebook page absolutely like, that was a must like mm-hmm. do it <laughs> do it now that's right so anyway, thank you for listening to everyone, or thank you for listening, everyone, and we will uh, catch you next time on Macabre Grimoire. Macabre Grimoire is a production of the Sioux Learn more at macabregrimoire.com.